Hello and welcome to Take Two. I'm Mike Murphy and my guest is John Banville. This series of podcasts is about books. Each of us will introduce a book and John will recommend a third that he feels deserves a special look. Today's first one is entitled The Sub-Prefect Should Have Held His Tongue and it is by Hubert Butler. And John, you recommended it to me to read and I, I had heard of Hubert Butler I knew that Hubert Butler was the butler involved in the Butler Gallery down in Kilkenny. I knew that he had been interested in archaeology and that he had written some essays, but I had never read him before. And to say that it was a pleasure is putting it mildly. It's like an enlightenment for me to be introduced to the works of Hubert Butler. I thought they were sensational. They are. They're, he was one of the great essayists of the 20th century. Um, he was shy and retiring. He lived on, as he said, his few acres down in Kilkenny. He published his essays mostly in the Kilkenny People and Kilkenny Magazine, places like that. Uh, he wasn't much interested in worldly success and fame and fortune. Uh, he is one of the wisest voices of the 20th century. I would put him up there, and in fact, I'd put him slightly above the likes of George Orwell. Uh, but he, it sort of annoys me that his essays should have been read worldwide contemporaneously. At that time, they should have been read worldwide. Right? They're just being read in Kilkenny. Wonderful city, wonderful, mm, I know all that. But, you know, I would like to have seen these published in the New York Times and in the London Times and the Irish Times. Uh, but... An extraordinary, first of all, from my point of view, I'd say an extraordinary stylist. Beautiful, beautiful uh, 18th century English prose written in the 20th century. Wonderfully witty, with that dry wit that the Anglo Irish have. You're never quite sure if he's made a joke or not. When you think about it, oh yeah, I see what he's saying. And his extraordinary adventurousness. He would set off to Europe with 18 bob in his pocket, you know. And he would end up in places like Croatia and so on. Um, and he, but he understood the places he went to, the most, even the most out of the way. Somehow he had a capacity to understand the local politics. I find that absolutely fascinating. Mm. Born in um, 1900, actually, born at the, uh, literally at the turn of, that se- of the century. But the extraordinary thing is that he wasn't published in, in a collection until he was 81 years of age. I mean, it is Anthony Farrell. Anthony Farrell started up Lilliput Press in order to publish Hubert Butler. Anthony Farrell uh, is <laughs> an unsung hero. Tell me about his background. Anglo-Irish, living in County Kilkenny, and chose, with all the travelling that you mentioned there, he still chose, I would like to settle here in Kilkenny, and he did. Well, he was very much conscious of himself as a butler, one of the butlers, one of the great aristocratic families of Ireland. Going back to Black Tom. Yeah. Mm. Uh, he, he, was not, he was never a snob, but he was conscious, as Yeats was, of a grand tradition. Now, he was treated horribly in Ireland, of course. The church went after him and went after him, and his books were banned. And his family weren't particularly wealthy, were they? No, they weren't wealthy. Uh, they were sort of down at heel, what used to be said, the relics of old decency. Um, but civilized, you know, a civilized man. 
You mentioned about his travels, and uh, when reading these essays, you're struck by the, the man's capacity to look at world affairs and to take an interest in them and and to try to do something about them. This is not just about writing. I, and I'm, I'm particularly, I was struck with his reaction to Oliver J. Flanagan's comment uh, in the Doyle. I don't know what year it was, but he spoke about the Jews are responsible for crucifying Christ uh, 1900 years ago, and they're still crucifying us. And Hubert Butler was. And, he said, sim- and Hitler, Hitler knew what to do with them. And Hubert Butler was simply appalled. Oliver and J. Flanagan, let's have the name again. You Oliver know, J. So Flanagan, absolutely. Pillar of the community. And, and, and Hubert Butler, he knew, that he was aware through his own contacts that the Jewish people that he knew in Vienna were in trouble because of what was happening with Hitler and so on. And he went over there to, to, to Vienna at his own expense, as you say, with 18 bob in his pocket, went over to Vienna and he literally organized that a number of people be brought back here to Ireland. The Catholic Church and the government were simply appalled. They wouldn't keep them when they did get here to Ireland. He saved their lives, literally. And then they made sure they were sent on to America. But what a step to take. What a brave man. What a courageous man. He had the kind of self-confidence that a poor Irish peasant like myself would not have had. I would have been terrified. Mm. Uh, But he went fearlessly out into the world. And he brought back bad news. He was never afraid of reporting bad news. He was not afraid, for instance, of pointing out the hideous role of the Franciscans in Croatia. Uh, That was another reason that he was... uh, persona non grata here. I mean, uh, among among the things he did, and you're absolutely right, I, I reading reading the essays, that, that business about he effectively foretold the Balkans war, you know, by going over, and, and as you say, the Franciscans, but he actually spent time living in Leningrad in a tenement. He went to Leningrad and managed to live in it. He lived in a tenement where he was teaching English to people. He was so adventurous. And it's absolutely typical of him that he yeah. didn't write an autobiography. He didn't and think it was interesting enough. It was only essays. Yeah. I don't know where he developed that prose style. I presume from reading, as we all oh, did. We developed our style from reading. But it's so calm. It's so... It's never dry. It's always... He was able to do passion without being passionate. But you're right. And I mean, in, in I know, is it in The Envoy or in one of the magazines of the time, he he literally has a, a real go at Patrick Kavner and one or two others of, over art or visual arts. I can't remember exactly what it was. But I mean, he really shreds Kavner in the nicest possible way. Nicest there's, possible way, yes. There's not, nothing malignant, there's nothing ugly about it. It's graceful. <laughs> if you can tear someone to shreds gracefully, he does it. Well, that was what I found so captivating when I began to read Anthony Farrell's editions of his essays. The, the grace, the restraint, the dry wit and the extraordinary, capacious knowledge of Ireland and of the world. He was a great um, 
a folklorist? I would love to have met the man. I think he he was published in in the in a collection when he was eighty one, and he lived until he was ninety one. I regret not ever. I I would have loved to. Have, I'd have been honoured to meet Hubert Butler. I'm sure you do. You know him, or did you know him? No, I didn't. My my brother interviewed him once for a newspaper. Um, found him delightful. I've got to mention what you referred to earlier on about the Franciscans and the trouble he got into with the uh, with the Irish Church when he came here. The subprefect essay itself, the subprefect should have held his tongue, refers to a massacre that occurred in the Balkans. And uh, the sub-prefect, who was a kind of down-the-line um, bureaucrat, and he mentioned it to somebody and was told by his, uh, it was said by his seniors, the sub-prefect should have held his tongue and not let on that we had murdered 4,000 people. And the sub-prefect essay is a devastating indictment of the forceful conversion by the Croats of millions of Serbs to Catholicism. And the Irish clergy and government supported this and denied it happened. And Butler showed that it was, showed proof and he was ridiculed for it. The horrific thing, and as you were saying about the Franciscans, a guy named um, Artukovic came to Ireland. He was one of the masterminds of one of the awful crimes, of the genocidal crimes. He came to Ireland and he was sheltered and protected by the Franciscans. You won't hear too much about that here in Ireland. Yes, another one of our... Oh, I can't even talk about it. Yeah. Also, he was a marvellous man for archaeology. He, he was very sad that archaeology wasn't taken more seriously in Ireland because we had such a history. Mm. And um, he created the Kilkenny Archaeological Society, which was very successful at its time. But because of the ostracizing and because of the reaction of the Catholic Church, he was forced to resign. Yeah, there were harsh times. There were harsh times. We prefer now to forget how bad things were in Ireland uh, after the war. One of the wonderful things about Butler was that he was able to look upon horrors and not be hardened and not give in to despair. He knew the darkness of the human heart. He knew what people were capable of. It didn't... It didn't kill his soul. No. Okay, John, how do people get their hands on Hubert Butler's work? He's published by Lilliput Press and Notting Hill Editions. Notting Hill Editions, uh, there are two volumes. They're very beautiful books, very beautiful objects. Uh, but Lilliput Press was, is the place to go to start. Okay. So Hubert Butler is the writer and uh, the collection that we're discussing today, although there are a few other collections, is the sub-prefect should have held his tongue. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times, the magazine and website for people who don't act their age. Or maybe you have a loved one or a friend who you know would love to read more. You can buy a subscription and have the magazine delivered direct to their door. To subscribe to Senior Times, visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash senior times. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road.
Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro 8050 smartphone, kindly provided by Doro, is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Say hello to our Premium Plus e-paper bundle interactive replica edition of the Irish Independent, Sunday Independent and The Hurled. Every paper, every day, delivered to your tablet, phone or desktop for less than €3.50 per week. Subscribe at independent.ie. Up close and independent. And welcome back. Um, Now, John, you are interested in discussing... Elizabeth Bishop, the poet, the American poet, uh, I know she's a favourite of yours. Is there a particular reason why Elizabeth Bishop in poetry rather than somebody else? Well, just that she's a superb poet. Uh, She's one of the great poets of the 20th century. If she had been a man, she would have a far larger reputation. Uh, She insisted on writing her own kind of poetry in a time when the hairy-chested men were going about, you know, shouting and getting drunk and carrying on. And she just worked away. She had a sad life. She was born in 1911 in Massachusetts. Her father died when she was, I think, eight months old. Her mother went insane about five years later. Uh, So she was essentially an orphan all her life. Uh, She was gay from the start. Um, Never talked about it, never made a fuss about it. Um, and wrote just some of the greatest, most moving, most witty, and most beautifully earthy poetry of the 20th century. Funny enough, as you say, a a tough, tragic life in certain ways, but she didn't write about that very much. That that wasn't reflected so much in her poetry. She wrote a couple of pieces. There's a little story called The Scream, I think it is, um... Uh, she did in roundabout ways, but never in that Anne Sexton autobiographical, you know, I'm suffering. She was never a confessional poet, even though she was a very good friend of Robert Lowell, who, despite knowing her sexual proclivities, uh, proposed marriage to her. She, her reply to his letters, masterpiece of not saying anything. Uh, she was She was brave. She was... Beautiful, I think. Um, Not conventionally beautiful, but I think a beautiful creature. Something shone out from inside. Something of her spirit. And uh, she had a tragic life. I think at least two or maybe three of her partners killed themselves. And not because she was driving them to it. She just picked the wrong people. 
uh, she went to live in Brazil for a while. Then she was back in America. She taught poetry, taught literature. She was an alcoholic, uh, but not, again, a demonstrative alcoholic, mm. quiet alcoholic. And she had a pretty grim life, but she was always gay in the old sense of the word, which mm. I refused to give up. Yeah. She had a great sense of gaiety and a great sense of, of the silliness of the world and mm. yet the beauty of the world. I remember we went to see her home in Key West and you just think about living in a place like Key West in the, I suppose it might have been, say the 50s, 40s, 50s, when there was no air conditioning and where you had mosquitoes all, all over the place and the heat in the summer, it must have been all pervasive. So, uh, but uh, she loved being there, wrote about it, wrote about the mangroves, wrote about the, the orchids. She loved tropical places. She loved uh, Key West. She loved Brazil. She was a creature of the sun, I think. She was not self-pitying, or if she was, she certainly didn't make it public. Nor did she wish to be known as a feminine or f a female poet, nor a gay poet. She didn't want any labels attached to her. Of course not. She was absolutely right. Yeah. Imagine announcing yourself to be a gay poet or a feminist poet. Well, you mentioned Robert Lowell there. The truth is, didn't she criticize him for his confessional style of writing. Yes, he used a lot of his letters, letters from Elizabeth Hardwick, another wonderful woman, another wonderful writer. Uh, he used her letters and reshaped them and turned them into sonnets in a book called The Dolphin. And Elizabeth Hardwick was deeply wounded. Uh, he'd already left her, but she, he was the love of her life, I think, Lowell. But Elizabeth Bishop wrote to him and said, you know, art just isn't worth this. Now, this, I'm not sure about that. I think art is worth anything. But it's a mark of her character as a human being mm. that she deplored his using his family, using his loved ones as material for his poetry. But that's what we all do. We all use the people around us. Uh, we're cannibals. Was there ever a reaction from Lowell to her criticism, or is it recorded? Well, Lowell was so crazy by then that I don't think he even noticed oh, it. Okay. Um, but he, no, he still loved her. He loved her to the end. They were loving friends. An old concept. Would you like to give us an example of one of her poems? One of the things I love about her is that she, she chooses humble subjects and never apologizes for them, never patronizes them, just observes them and reports what she's seen. And this poem is called Filling Station. Oh, but it is dirty, this little filling station, oil-soaked, oil-permeated, to a disturbing overall black translucency. Be careful with that match. Father wears a dirty, oil-soaked monkey suit that cuts him under the arms, and several quick and saucy and greasy sons assist him. It's a family filling station, all quite thoroughly dirty. Do they live in the station? It has a cement porch behind the pumps, and on it a set of crushed and grease-impregnated wickerwork. On the wicker sofa, a dirty dog, quite comfy. 
Some comic books provide the only note of colour, of certain colour. Why the extraneous plant? Why the tabaret? Why, oh, why the doily? Embroidered in daisy stitch with marguerites, I think, and heavy with grey crochet. Somebody embroidered the doily. Somebody waters the plant. Or oils it, maybe. Somebody arranges the rows of cans so that they softly say, Esso, so, 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 to the high-strung automobiles. Somebody loves us all. We all know that petrol station, don't we? Mm-hmm. Even even in Ireland, if we saw those. There used to be one at the... At the uh, on the way to uh, down the mountains, down the, on the way to the Sally Gap, and the guy used to wear the things, and I knew his daughter when I worked in Aer Lingus. And uh, I asked her about it, and she said, he's the most delightful man, and he's the most well-read man I know, and he runs a little petrol station down at the Sally Gap. Did you ever uh, want to write poetry? Did you ever write poetry? Oh, when I was an adolescent, of course. Would you would you like to give us one or two or three? Or... <laughs> <laughs> sure, I tried to paint as well. I think my brother has some of them. And if I, I stepped I've offered outside, him good money for them, I, so I could yeah, burn them. Maybe I could step outside while you read a few. <laughs> I couldn't do poetry. I don't know how to do it. I don't. It's like music. I can't understand the no, the process. I, ne- I never. But McGarren always made that distinction. He said, "There's verse and there's prose, and then there's poetry." Poetry can happen in either. He was speaking, right. Speaking of McGarren, I remember interviewing him. You, he, you know, you were talking about that every day you come down and you simply work, you write. That's what you do. Mm. You think and you write. I remember McGarren. He was writing uh, that they may face the rising sun, and you may recall it was t- the publishers were getting a little restless. It was years in the making, and I remember him telling me about. We were talking about the process of writing. And I, I said to him, is, is it disciplined, do you? And he said, he said to me, there are, he said, I have a, just very recently, he said, I came downstairs, I had a blank page in front of me and I looked at it for the day and it took me three days of looking at that blank page before I could write a single word. Mm-hmm. What's your reaction to that? Oh, I know the feeling. What? I know the feeling, it's terrifying. Every morning is the same. You look at the blank page and think, I do not know how to do this. How did I do it yesterday? I have no idea. I'll give it up. I'll kill myself. What do you do? I'll go out and get drunk. What do you do? You fiddle around and you do eventually put down a word and then put down another word and then by the middle of the afternoon you're writing something. It must be quite debilitating if you haven't come up with anything. It is debilitating. Look at me. I'm only 47. (laughs) Look at me. But I, I did think that's pretty that's pretty tough now. Flo, Flaubert's Bella said a wonderful thing. She said, "Your mania for sentences has dried up your heart." Gosh, wonderful. Yeah, it is scary. John, did she did she write about um, her childhood? It was, as you say, it was pretty tragic. It was pretty difficult, and she lost people through the rest of the course of her life. But did she refer back to the difficult childhood that she had in her work? Well, like all poets, she wrote very obliquely. Um, she did write some autobiographical sketches, uh, very brief, brief pieces. She never talked directly about her life. She was much too self-contained and much too mannerly to impose her life on us. But, for instance, in the poem One Art, 
she talks about losing. Uh, shall I read it? Please do. One art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Faces and names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch, and look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. That's okay. probably her best-known poem, is it? Yeah. Wouldn't it be? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, there we will leave it, if that's okay with you. Yep. Uh, poems by Elizabeth Bishop. Here's your chance to win a top-of-the-range smartphone, a Doro 8050, designed specifically for seniors. Doro are market leaders in creating phones with clearer sound and larger text, one that's protected if it falls or can alert others if you do, and makes staying in touch with family and friends simple and enjoyable. At Doro, they are dedicated to helping seniors live a better life without compromise. Doro helped to make ageing an independent, secure and rich part of life. As you know, age is just a number. All you need to do to win a Doro 8050 smartphone, kindly provided by Doro, is go to the website www.seniortimes.ie and follow the instructions. To see the full range of Doro phones, visit www.doro.com. The lucky winner will be announced on the Senior Times Facebook page. Doro Phones, making technology easy for all. Your free travel card can be used on all Expressway coach services. Despite restrictions, we're staying on the road. Whether you need to attend a medical appointment or for any other essential journey, remember to travel with Expressway. Expressway. Keeping Ireland connected. Say hello to Independent Weekend Home Delivery. Save up to 40% with the Irish Independent and Sunday Independent delivered to your door every weekend. Plus, enjoy premium access to independent.ie and read our interactive e-paper edition all week long. All from just €5 per week. Search for Independent Home Delivery now. And our final book for today is A Fortunate Life by Albert Facey, A.B. Facey. A Fortunate Life is regarded as an Australian classic um, and it's about a man who his life led in the early part of the 20th century in Western Australia, which was a Wild West unto itself. And John, I have to be perfectly frank with you. I was a little tentative in asking you to read it because Albert Facey was not a writer, not a qualified writer. He simply told the story of his eventful life and I felt John Banville is a bit of a perfectionist and he likes stylized writing and he's a little bit like Robert Hughes, a little bit of an elitist, as Robert Hughes said about himself, I am an elitist, and that you would not enjoy reading Albert Facey's A Fortunate Life. 
was I right? <laughs> I'm an elitist and I'm certainly not a snob. Uh, I love this book. You love uh, this book? Yes. Seriously? It's very simple. It reminds me when I went to Australia first and I discovered Aboriginal art, which I fell in love with immediately. Uh, some superb uh, Aboriginal artists. And I think that he was a, uh, that kind of artist. He wasn't self-consciously an artist. He, I think it was late in his teens before he even learned to read and write. Uh, and he writes very directly, very straightforwardly. There are no shades of ambiguity here. But it's all the better for that. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Oh, I'm so pleased. I really am. I, I genuinely thought you'd say, oh, God, this was an effort to get through this. I mean, what what an eventful life. But it's two things. One, an eventful life, which we'll go into. But also, isn't it a fantastic portrait of the West of Australia? It is. It's like uh, Lonesome Dove or one of those yeah. uh, classics of, of uh, American, the American West. Uh, I did feel, reading it, <laughs> it's so... Oh, Albert, if this is a fortunate life, what would you consider a misfortunate one? <laughs> I because, did too. my goodness, his childhood was horrendous. Yeah. He wrote the book in later years. Now, I, I, I may be wrong in the ages, but I think he was in his 80s. His wife, his beloved wife of, say, 50 years, had died a few years beforehand. She had always been encouraging him to write the stories that he was telling about his life down and have them published. And he had them published. Uh, he wrote the stories down as best he could, and then he gave them to, I think it was the local Fremantle Journal in Western Australia or someone like that. And to his, ex his amazement, within a couple of years, um, it had become an Australian major hit and, uh, and a classic. Yes, it was first published by the Fremantle Arts Centre Press in 1981. Yeah. Uh, and then it's published in Penguin. Uh, yes, a, a, a wonderful piece of writing, a wonderful piece of sustained writing. I mean, it's a, it's a long book. Uh, and his powers of description are extraordinary his account of the Gallipoli uh, campaign and his honesty, you know, saying, I was terrified all the time. And his compassion and his sense of the tragedy and the futility of it. He's wonderful about, he says, you know, anybody who's not killed a man with a bayonet doesn't understand about terror and horror. And he said, the look on a man's face, when you're standing in front of me, you just stuck your bayonet in him. Uh, this is, as I said, it's because it's completely simple. Mm. No frills, no, no, no posturings, no mm. stylized tricks, just the stuff itself. We have to assume that it is all true. Um, I would be very surprised to, f to hear that it wasn't. Uh, he was a teetotaler all his life, which... Anybody who knows Australia will find a remarkable fact. Um, but he does catch something about that, that marvellous, strange country. I mean, here is a continent which has, what is it, 20 million people in it? Mm. And as a friend of mine said when I was down there, she said, there are more things out to kill you here than the rest of the world put together. Even spiders. Yeah, she said, there's that spider. I can't do the accent, I wish I could. Is that spider that comes up out of the lavatory and bites yeah. on the bomb and you're dead within three seconds? Yeah. Um, but yet a beautiful country. And 
I don't know about you, but I just I just love the country. I really thought so it was splendid. I. I was there for about three or four days, and I kept saying there's something about this country that I... And then I realized there's no organized religion. There's no state religion. I hadn't thought it's, of that. It's a, yeah. a, a country with... A, it has religions, of course. There are churches and there are people. But overall, it is a, a, a secular country. Yeah. As a, uh, there's a sense of freedom, I, isn't there, all as, the way As through. another friend of mine said, she's PR woman, publisher's PR, she said, Australia is a wonderful place. You've got your barbie, you've got your chook, you've got your stubby. What more could you ask for? <laughs> yeah. The barbie was a barbecue. The chook was a... a, a chook? A chicken, chucky. Yeah. And, and your stubby is a, beer. a can of beer. can of beer. <laughs> and I said, sure, I thought, and I said, you know, you're right. What more can you ask? What more can you ask? What about his childhood? Wasn't it horrendous? I mean, absolutely horrendous. But, of course, he knew no better. Mm. So he was able to bear it, but that fellow who whipped him when he was when he was eight years old. Or well, something. he was when he was eight years of age. He was um, he was hired out to neighbours as a as a slave, effectively, yeah. and he was with this semi criminal family. Yeah. And uh, I think he hid because he was afraid of the violence that might happen. In, at the Christmas party, he hid some of the drink and it was discovered that he had hidden the drink and one of the men horsewhipped him to literally within an inch of yeah, his death. Yeah, he very nearly died. He very nearly died. And he bore the scars throughout yeah. his life. Yeah. But for every person like that, there were ten people who were good to him. He's very good on women, for instance, how kind they were to him. I mean, mother figures. And he's very good on the Aborigines. Yeah, he, his mother though effectively oh, the mother abandoned was, him. Well, and the then mother was when she, he, was, she, she was eventually, abandoned. Yeah. She eventually got in touch with them and wanted her him to come and visit her, and then she wanted to charge him for. Yeah, every, his grandma every, warned him, you know, oh, don't don't tell she, her how much money you have. Yeah, she was a bad lot. And 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 as you say, he he spoke very kindly of the Aboriginal mm. population and. That, like you mentioned Lonesome Dove there earlier on and you the cattle run that the boys did in, in Lonesome Dove is the highlight of the whole book, the cattle run from, was it north to south? But anyway, so does Albert, gets into a cattle, a cattle run and they're going for months and months. Yeah. But he gets lost in a storm. His horse takes him out and he's completely lost for days on end. And he's afraid. He sees an Aboriginal crouching in some distance, but he's afraid to contact him in case he'll be killed and eaten or something like that. But then they rescue him and he... The three Aborigines, they, they can't speak a word of English, he can't speak a word of their language. And they keep being impatient with him. He doesn't, he doesn't realize that what they're doing, what they're busying themselves about is rescuing him. Yeah. And I didn't know, for instance, that Aborigines send smoke signals. They built a fire. He thought, my God, they're going to burn me and eat me. But they weren't. They were sending smoke signals to another yeah. uh, tribe who could contact white people, and he was rescued. It's a wonderful story. Wonderful story. And none of it is sentimental. No. Absolutely no, no sentimentality anywhere in None. It. And and then he finds I, I can't remember the circumstances exactly, but he finds that he's a useful boxer, that he's able to fight, and he joins a travelling troupe as one of these boxers come up and come up and challenge him and see can you beat him, and was quite successful. Yes, he was, uh, and then he discovered that he was the only man in Australia who was exactly six feet tall. He's fascinated by this, by this strange fact that some <laughs> doctor right. told him. That's right. Uh, he's a delightful man. I mean, you, you, 
you can't help but empathize with him and, and admire him, admire his restraint. You know, yeah. He never feels sorry for himself. He tells you he was afraid, he was in pain, he was in low spirits, but he didn't, doesn't ever whine or no. whinge. He must have been a very courageous character. The, the episode where he went down in, in a collapsing well and the well nearly came in on top of him and they had given him up for dead at the top. And but again, he tells you how ter- terrified he was. He doesn't... Yeah. No heroics. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, I... It did catch something for me of the spirit of Australia, my country... You know, made by convicts and the odd bureaucrat, mm-hmm. uh, and look what they've done. Mm-hmm. I mean, you arrive in Sydney. It reminded me when I went there in the nineties. It reminded me so much of California in the sixties. Uh, the same kind of optimism, the same kind of mm. carefree sense of you know, isn't it wonderful to be alive? Yeah. Isn't it wonderful yeah. to have this wonderful climate? Yeah, I agree with you. I love it. Um, the Gallipoli, as you mentioned early on, I, the horrors of those young men going over to Gallipoli, and then Albert lost one son, two sons. I think he lost two of his sons to subsequent wars. But his experiences at Gallipoli, the horror that those guys faced. He tells it a little anecdote, which should be funny, but isn't. He doesn't present it as funny. He's just saying, and as an illustration of how terrified he was that he had in his back pocket um, a knife and fork and he squatted down to escape gunfire or something. And when he stood up, he was walking along and somebody said to him, what's that? He said, I realised that the fork was stuck in my behind and I didn't even feel it. He said, that was the level of terror. And as I say, somebody else would have made a a humorous sketch out of it, but he's just quite simply saying, I was so terrified I didn't even realise I had a fork stuck in my bum, you know. And then he comes back. Um, after all of this, he becomes a farmer and uh, he became quite distinguished. He was a socially, he was a very socially conscious man and he was very kind to others and he got involved in trade union yes. and he drove a bus, or no, a tram. tram. A, yeah, tram a tram he drove when he got back. And there are a number of streets and avenues named after him at this point. And he, he, gives, an ac- he gives an account of being wounded at Gallipoli, or a piece of shrapnel strikes him in the side of the face, wedges in his face, knocks out four of his teeth, loosens five or six more of them. The surgeon has to pull the piece of shrapnel out of his face, sew him up. Uh, then he gets shot in the shoulder. So that when he went back to Australia after the war, you know, he must have been in a dreadful shape. And yet he was able to become tram driver and worked at all kinds of things. A very brave man, a very strong man. And a very... Simple, but, you know, to say simple always sounds condescending. He was simple in the best way. He determined to live his life as best he could. And then there's that wonderful thing that happened to him, that when he was in, uh, I think it was Gallipoli, uh, they got a delivery of, was it sweaters or something, that had been hand-knitted by uh, young women. And he got one that was from... The woman who became who became his became his wife, wife later yeah, on. That's right. Coincidentally. Coincidentally, you know, yeah. He just yeah. met her by chance. Can I ask you this? Were you moved by it? Oh, I was very moved. Oh, by were it. you? But not in that weepy, yeah. you know. Because mostly when you're moved by something, you're actually feeling sorry for yourself. In this, you feel an empathy 
with this brave man. I think admiration is what I felt more than than being moved or I just admired him so much. But as you say, if that's a fortunate life, <laughs> I don't want to read about an unfortunate one. I kept worrying that at some point he'd say, you know, my faith in the Lord kept me going. But there's a marvelous paragraph towards the end where he says, uh, my experience in the First World War and now the Second War changed my outlook on things. It's hard to believe that there is a God. And he goes on saying the Bible is a book written by men for men. At the end of it, is he just says, uh, <laughs> you, you know, when you're starving, it's difficult to remain a believer. No, sir, there is no God. It is only a myth. I was so cheered up by that because they say I kept, kept waiting to get God, you know, find yeah, religion. There, this was, is source of, there was no, none of that. He was a humanist, great humanist, uh, which is far better than being soppy religious. Are you surprised it's an Australian classic? Oh, no, I'm, I'm just surprised that I hadn't heard of it before you told me about it. Good, I'm very pleased. But as people in Australia say, you know, nothing penetrates up that far. You know, you know, just you guys up there, you don't know what's going on down here. Yeah. Okay. Good. I'm so. I really am so pleased that you enjoyed it. Um, let me let me go back over the books that we feature today. Hubert Butler, uh, his collection of essays, The Subprefect Should Have Held His Tongue, Elizabeth Bishop, The Complete Poems, and A Fortunate Life by A.B. Facey, Albert Facey. Definitely worth reading. John Banville, once again, may I say thank you very much indeed. Been a pleasure and look forward to the next one. Thank you. I enjoyed it. 